Good morning. We're going through a series of messages on the Ten Commandments, and this is our second week looking at how to put the knot back in the Seventh Commandment. Exodus 20.14 reads, You shall not commit adultery. Now, there are three ways in which a person can commit the sin of adultery. Number one is by being sexually unfaithful to your spouse or by having sexual relationships with a married person. That's the most obvious. The second is by lustful thoughts. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now what does that mean to look on a woman to lust for her? Well, obviously Jesus is not talking about the initial glance or the involuntary glance. That's temptation. He's talking about the intentional, prolonged, repeated gaze. When you undress a woman with your eyes and with your mind, you have committed adultery in your heart. And just as we saw in the previous commandment, you can commit murder in your heart. So you can commit adultery in your heart. And then the third way you can commit this sin is by illegitimate divorce. Jesus goes on to say, In a couple verses later in Matthew 5, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. When you divorce your spouse without a just biblical cause, that's adultery. So you can commit adultery in a motel room, in a computer room, or in a courtroom. My my purpose this morning is not to resurrect your past. If you have committed adultery in the past, you can't change that. And if if you have confessed it to God, He has forgiven it, and He has forgotten it. And you need to forget it too. If you still feel guilt, that guilt is not from God. That is Satan condemning you. My purpose this morning is to focus on the future. I want to talk about how to affair-proof your marriage. And I want to give you five safeguards. Number one, magnify the covenant. When you were married, you said, I do, and you entered into a covenant relationship with your spouse. And in this day when people are minimizing that covenant, we need to magnify it. Now, unfortunately, I find that people tend to read their divorce agreement more carefully than their marriage agreement. That's why I encourage couples to write their own vows because I want them to know what they're signing up for. Last week, we looked at the nature of the covenant at the very first marriage in Genesis chapter 2, and Moses said this in verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
If you're married here today, let me remind you of four commitments you've made. Number one, marriage is primary. You are to leave father and mother. You are to leave the most basic relationship you have known. Marriage has the highest priority of any other human relationship. In, forms of, in, form, in terms of human relationships, your parents are not your primary relationship. Your children are not your primary relationship. Your spouse is your primary relationship. Second thing, you vowed that marriage is permanent. You are to cleave. That word means to stick with like glue. Marriage is not a commitment until someone better comes along. It is a commitment until death do us part. If you are married, you have made a commitment to be faithful for life. And this commitment exceeds any other human relationship because it's not just a commitment between two people. The Bible tells us that God joins us together. Jesus said in Mark 10, 9, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Third commitment, marriage is exclusive. He is to cleave to his wife, singular. Marriage is forsaking all others. Marriage is one husband and one wife for life. And then the fourth commitment is that marriage is intimate. Because it says they shall become one flesh. Marriage is so intimate that you become one flesh instead of two. And he's not just talking about the sexual union there. It means they will be one physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Someone has described marriage as a romance model, or a romance novel. And in the very first chapter, both the hero and the heroine die. And you think the story's over, but instead they become one new person. If you're going to affair-proof your marriage, you need to magnify the covenant. Let me give you a second safeguard. You need to measure the consequences. God is not prudish. He thought up the idea of sexual intercourse. It's, It's His thing. He gave it to us. He wants you to enjoy it. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He put Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 1 and they were naked and God said it's very good. But listen, it's only good in the context of the marriage bond. When it's outside of that, it is not good. When it's outside of that, it has dire consequences. That's why God put the not in the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And God's prohibition there is not to bring you pain. It's to bring you protection. I'm not big on signs. I don't like most signs. But there's one sign I really like. It's at the top of the interstate exit where it says, do not enter. And it's there to protect me. Because I don't want to go down the wrong ramp and end up going in a destructive direction. You say, well, Dan, I like the left lane of the interstate. 
It's nice, it's smooth. You can drive on it, but not very far. You see, good things can hurt you. God created water, it's good. You can't live without it. But too much of it in the wrong place, and you drown. God gave us the gift of fire, it's good. It can warm you, but it can also burn you. God has given you the drive for sex, it's good. Properly expressed inside of marriage, it's fulfilling and wonderful. But outside of marriage, it's destructive. In fact, nothing damages like sexual sin. I want you to think about the consequences. Number one, it's a sin against God. It's breaking His commandment. And God has posted this same sign throughout Scriptures. In fact, the frequency of the prohibitions against adultery are second only to idolatry in the Old Testament and second to none in the New Testament. It's a sin against God. David figured that out too late in Psalm 51.4 when he prayed against you and you only. I have sinned. It's a sin against God. It's also a sin against your own self. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Sexual intercourse was uniquely designed by God to express the physical and spiritual unity of a husband and wife. And when you take that outside of that bond and commit immorality with someone else, it is not just skin deep. You are giving a part of yourself away that you can never get back. There is no sin that would cause you more personal damage physically, psychologically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally than immorality. Proverbs 6.32 says, but a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. People today are promoting safe sex. There is no such thing as safe sex outside of marriage. It is unsafe. It destroys you. You cannot make adultery safe. It's a sin against yourself. It's like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of Quaker oats. He said, for this one moment of pleasure, I'm going to give away the blessings of God. Rather than safe sex, we need to be promoting sacred sex. Hebrews 13.4 says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. What's he talking about? Next phrase says, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. It's a sin against God. It's a sin against yourself. Third consequence, it's a sin against your home. Robertson McQuilkin in his book, Biblical Ethics, said this better than I've heard anybody say it. He said, infidelity tells your child, your mother is not worth much, and your father is a liar and a cheat. Furthermore, honor 
is not nearly as important as pleasure. In fact, my child, my own satisfaction is more important than you. This is a sin that destroys your home. It's a total betrayal of your spouse, and it brings irreparable harm to your children. Let me give you a fourth consequence. It's a sin against your church. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. You say, my personal sex life is none of your business. Yes, it is. Because we are members of the same body. And then fifthly, it's a sin against your world. If you're a Christian, you are a testimony to the world around you. What does it say to the world if the gospel that you claim gives you eternal life, if the gospel that you claim transforms you into a new person, what does it say to the world if the gospel can't give you the power to keep your pants on? If you're flirting with adultery, you need to measure the consequences. It's a sin against God, a sin against yourself, a sin against your home, a sin against your church, a sin against your world. Now when Jesus said, if you look on a woman to lust for her, you've already committed adultery in your heart, don't fall for the reasoning that says, I've already thought it, I might as well do it. Because although both of those are sin, physical immorality brings the greater consequences. And on the other hand, don't fall for the reasoning that says lust is just a minor issue. Because when you don't address adultery in your heart, you are just one opportunity away from the act of adultery. When James described lust in James chapter 1, it's interesting to me that he used sexual language. Listen to what he said. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. When you harbor lust in your heart, it impregnates you. And it's going to ultimately give birth to sinful acts that lead to death. Don't tell yourself, I can handle lust, I can control lust. You can't control lust. Paul Harvey told this story about the way an Eskimo hunts down a wolf. He said, first the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze, and then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. A blood popsicle with a knife as a stick. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh blood. He begins to lick faster and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. 
So great become his cravings for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more and more and more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. Lust operates that same way. And if you're going to affair-proof your marriage, you need to measure the consequences. Third safeguard, maintain the closeness. This one's obvious. The closer you are as husband and wife, the less likely it is for one of you to stray. Now, this is a challenge because God has especially designed your spouse to fulfill you, but your spouse is very different from you. It's like the title of that popular book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Sometimes you seem miles apart. Sometimes it seems like you're speaking different languages. You have to watch the man who says, I understand women because he'll lie about other things. But if you're married, you can't throw your hands in the air and say, women. Because although you are not responsible to understand all women, you are responsible to understand one woman. 1 Peter 3.7 says, You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. Men are only told to study two things, the Word of God and your wife. Both can be hard to interpret. Heard about one husband who called a therapist and said, I don't know what to do. My wife thinks she's a piano. Therapist said, well, bring her in for an appointment. There was a pause and the, man, and the husband said, are you crazy? You know what it costs to move a piano? wasn't that funny. That husband was understanding his wife. See, nobody else may understand her, but you need to understand her. You need to study her and understand her likes, her dislikes, her dreams, her feelings, her fears, her joys. Willard Harley wrote a book entitled, His Needs, Her Needs. In it, he lists the top five most basic needs of men and women. Here are men's needs. Number one, sex. Number two, a wife who is a recreational playmate. Number three, an attractive wife. Number four, domestic support. And number five, admiration. Now think about that. These are men. This is the average man wants from his wife sex, a playmate who does the recreational things that I want, an attractive wife, somebody who does the dishes and keeps a nice house, and somebody who admires me. Now we're pretty shallow. Here's the top 
five needs of a woman. Number one, affection. Number two, conversation. Number three, openness and honesty. Number four, financial security. And number five, a husband who is a good father to the kids. Now, did you notice something? Those five needs don't match up. Men, your top need isn't even in her top five. That's why you find yourself saying, I would love to fulfill my duty to my wife, but she won't let me. Well, maybe that's because what you're offering to fulfill, she doesn't need. You see, her two top needs are affection and communication. So what your wife needs starts in the morning, not at night. What your wife needs starts in the kitchen, not the bedroom. What your wife needs starts with her emotions, not her body. Here's what will happen when you begin to understand her and meet her needs. You will talk with her more. You will listen to her more. You will compliment her more. You will date her more. You will embrace her more as a simple display of affection. She won't just get your undivided attention at 10 o'clock when you want to be intimate. If you're married here today, guys, can you name your wife's top five needs? If you can't, it's likely that you're not fulfilling them. And if you're not fulfilling them, then you're not growing closer. And if you're not growing closer, you are vulnerable. Alan Alda's wife put it this way, it's real easy to leave your spouse. It's not so easy to leave your best friend. Fourth safeguard. Minimize the chances. There are things that you can do to minimize the chances of this happening. Number one is to flee. This is the primary way the Bible gives us to escape sexual temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee from youthful lusts. You don't negotiate with sexual temptation. You don't rationalize with sexual temptation. What you do is you run. Don't place yourself in a situation where you're going to be tempted. You say, well, this always seems to happen when I'm there. Well, don't be there. Flee. You say, well, sometimes it happens in places where I can't flee. One of the most common places is the office. Everybody looks good. Everybody smells good. You don't see them at home with curlers in their hair. You don't see them with the toenail clippers. You don't see them with diarrhea. You don't see them in any of those settings. You need to make sure that in the office, your relationships are professional. Probably the greatest threat is business travel. If you're someone who has to travel with business, 
You need to be like Daniel in Daniel chapter 1, who when he arrived in Babylon, it says he purposed in his heart to be faithful to God. He had a plan. He had a strategy to make sure he was going to stay faithful to God in a setting that was difficult. Maybe you need to show up to the hotel and go to the desk and say, I want you to turn off all the movie channels because I don't want that garbage in my mind. Maybe you need to pack a picture of your family and put it on the dresser to remind you of who you are. Maybe you need to call home. You've got a cell phone that has unlimited time on it. Call home and talk to your wife as long as you need to and communicate in that setting. See, that's applying the Word of God right there. <laughs> For many men, the biggest challenge is the Internet. Don't put your computer in a private place. Put it in a public place. Because God's watching, you might as well let everybody else watch. Or if you can't handle it, throw it out. You say, well, that's kind of extreme. Well, I would rather go overboard than be thrown overboard. Flee. Number two, choose your friends carefully. Your friends can either be an encouragement or a detriment in this area. I don't know how many times I've had guys tell me, you know, the fellows at work say I ought to ditch my wife. And I'm always like, well, why would you be getting advice from the guys at work? If you don't have friends who model faithfulness, if you don't have friends who challenge you to remain faithful, if you don't have friends who confront you when you're compromising, then you need some new friends. Third, guard your mind. There is no such thing as a one-night stand. It begins a long time before that. It's a process. It's a series of events. It's gradual. It's like erosion. And it begins in your mind. You have to guard your mind. What do you watch on TV? What do you watch on the internet? What do you read? What do you think about? What do you listen to? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're in a battle. And we need to capture those thoughts. The battle is won or lost in your mind. Job took that seriously. In Job 31.1, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And you need to be serious about it as well and minimize the chances of adultery. I'll give you a fifth safeguard. Make the commitment. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. If you decide to diet or you decide to work out or you decide to finish your graduate degree, what is the key ingredient? Discipline. 
Paul says to this young man, Timothy, you need to discipline yourself for the goal of godliness. Let me suggest four things you need to do to discipline yourself. Number one, seek God. 2 Corinthians 2.22 that we read earlier finishes this way. It says, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I'm not just to flee from immorality because of the negative consequences. I'm to flee from it because of the positive consequences. Because it allows me to call on God with those who have a pure heart. I like that word pure. What's pure mean? Pure means honest. Pure means transparent. Pure means 100% His. If I came to you and said, I've, I've got some bottled water I want to sell. It's pure water. And you say, well, how pure is it? And I said, well, it's 80% water and 20% toxins. You would probably say, no, thank you. Because that's not pure. God says we need to let go of sexual immorality and seek Him with a pure heart. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're transparent. You're surrendered to Him. Jesus made a great promise in Matthew 5.8. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't think that's just a future promise. I think that's a present principle. When I am pure, 100% given over to the Lord, it improves my spiritual eyesight, and I can see the Lord. The best thing you can do to turn from sexual sin is to turn to God with an honest, surrendered, transparent heart. Second discipline. Practice the presence of God. It's the title of an old book by Brother Lawrence. Practice the presence of God. God lives in you, so everywhere you go, He's there. But so often as believers, we spend much of our life ignorant of God's presence. We're like Jacob in Genesis 28.16 who woke up from sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. If you don't know the Lord is with you, you're going to have a very difficult time with sexual temptation. We need to be like Joseph who, when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39, said, How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Third discipline, memorize Scripture. Jesus set the example in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil. Three times he quoted Scripture. Now, if Jesus needed to memorize Scripture, I would say you do too. The psalm writer said in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hidden in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against thee. Fourth discipline. Establish accountability. Give someone permission, someone other than your spouse, give someone permission to hold you accountable to your commitments. Give someone permission to meet with you every week and ask the tough questions 
How are you doing in this area? Are you keeping your commitments in this area? And their last question needs to be, have you lied to me about anything today? Give someone permission to hold you accountable, to toe the line, to keep your heart faithful to God and faithful to your spouse. This fall, we're going to make an emphasis on discipleship, this idea of one-on-one, because it's so important in our life to have someone who holds us accountable. How do you affair-proof your marriage? Magnify the covenant that sexual intimacy expresses. Measure the consequences. It's the most damaging sin of all. Maintain the closeness. Your spouse should be your best friend. Minimize the chances. Do everything to limit the opportunities. And make the commitment. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now the positive side of this commandment is simply this. It's to turn to God and turn to your spouse and say, I still do. I still do. My wife and I have renewed our vows on several occasions. We usually do it on vacation. We find a real pretty spot and we, not necessarily the same vows, we make up new vows and we say them to each other. We're really saying, I still do. We're going to close our service with communion. I think that's fitting because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And and the Bible tells us that The marriage relationship is a picture of Jesus' relationship with us. He's the groom, we're the bride. He's the husband, we're the wife. And Jesus said his vows to us on the cross of Calvary when he laid down his life for you and me. He was saying, I do, to you when he died in your place. And as we take communion and we take the bread and the cup reminding us of his body and his blood, what we're really saying to him afresh is, I still do. So I'm going to ask you to prepare your hearts today and then take communion. We're going to do it a little different today. We're going to pass it to you. But I want you to think about your relationship with the Lord and think about whether you could say you're seeking the Lord today with a pure heart and if not, be honest and transparent with Him today. Even in those areas you don't want anybody to see because God already sees them. Be honest with him and experience the joy that's only found in his presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for Jesus who died in our place. And Lord, as we talk about a pure heart, we realize that we can't do that ourselves. We're not pure. You alone are holy, and yet you have provided your son to cleanse us and forgive us and to give us Jesus' righteousness and to make us like you. And so, Lord, today as we remember the cross, as we take the bread and the cup, we pray, Lord, that our our hearts would be pure, open, honest, totally surrendered to you. And as we come, we just want to say again, I still do, because you're worthy in your son's name.